Welcome to the next edition of Fixed Interest, where we will be discussing Argentina and Ecuador. My name is Shelly Shetty, and I'm a Managing Director in the America's Sovereign Team. I'm happy to be joined by Todd Martinez, Director in our team and the Primary Analyst for both Argentina and Ecuador. By background, both Argentina and Ecuador completed their respective debt restructurings in September. Both countries have been under financial duress and their concluded debt restructurings should provide them with a much-needed debt service relief in the coming years. On the back of their debt restructurings, which upgraded Argentina's ratings to C and Ecuador to B- with stable outlook. Today, we are going to discuss the outcome of those debt restructurings and outlook for these two countries as we head into 2021. So, Todd, to set the stage, can you compare and contrast the recent debt restructurings we've seen in Argentina and Ecuador? Thanks, Shelley. Good to be here. Uh, Argentina and Ecuador's restructuring certainly make for a great comparison. They were very similar in their financial structure, but very different in, in how they were carried out. In terms of the financials, uh, the bottom line for both were recovery values of around 55 cents on the dollar. That includes small haircuts, 9% for Ecuador, 2% for Argentina, somewhat larger relief in interest payments, you know, very gradual step up in the coupon rates to levels 25% lower than before, and postponement of the maturities by about five years. So one thing we can say for both is that they offer meaningful financial relief, but more in terms of liquidity than insolvency. In other words, they postpone the debt service quite a bit, but don't reduce it as much. And that means both sovereigns have more breathing room to do the work they need to do to be able to pay this debt eventually, but that this work remains very challenging. And even though both deals were similar, they got there in very different ways. Argentina played hardball, started off with a very aggressive offer, and after many iterations, got to a deal with creditors after many months. Ecuador skipped all that, and on its, its first proposal, was accepted by creditors. So I think there are many issues at play here, but some of the differences were that in Argentina, there were more than just financial issues at stake. The government there cared a lot about the legal structure of the collective action clauses in the new bonds, and creditors cared about that because it, it, it sets a precedent for other restructuring. So that was one snag in Argentina. Also, creditors always seem to have the sense that Argentina only had a liquidity problem, not a debt sustainability problem, whereas Ecuador had both that Argentina was asking for more debt relief than it needed, whereas Ecuador was asking for a reasonable amount. So I think that's another thing that, that led to um, much more protracted negotiation in Argentina. So, Todd, we've upgraded both countries, but in both cases, ratings are very low. So why is that? And more importantly, why do we rate Ecuador in the low B category and Argentina in the triple C category? Yeah, it's important to emphasize that both ratings are very low due to some common challenges. First of all, in terms of liquidity, despite much lower debt service in the coming years in both countries, it's still unclear how both are going to be able to raise the funding they need to meet their broader obligations, debt service and salaries alike. Um, and then there's significant risk in terms of medium term debt sustainability to be able to pay their restructured bonds down the road. Both countries need to grow and achieve big fiscal adjustments, and that's going to be very difficult. And third, you know, there's a lot of policy uncertainty in both countries that makes it hard to have co much confidence in any of these respects. In Ecuador, that has to do with elections in early 2021. We don't know who's going to be in charge there for the coming years. And in Argentina, we do. But this current government um, has had a somewhat erratic policy approach. It's difficult to discern a clear plan. So those are the similarities. But what are the differences that explain Ecuador's higher exit rating? Uh, a few things. I think it has to do with the policy direction. 
Ecuador at least took advantage of this crisis year to make a down payment on on reforms and macro adjustments that it needs, whereas Argentina has really doubled down on policies that add to its imbalances. Ecuador also has the backing of the IMF um, in the form of a new program. That means a lot of funding and something of a policy anchor. Um, and both of those things are missing in Argentina. And then a third point here is the default um, record. Whereas both countries do have local issued debt coming due, only Argentina has a recent track record of, of needing to restructure that debt, whereas Ecuador has always remained current. It has CETES instruments that are held by the local banks, and Ecuador has strong incentive to remain current on those um, to, to bolster its dollarization regime. So that, that's an important uh, final difference that explains the, the rating differential. So, Todd, let's move to some country specifics. First, let's start with Ecuador. Uh, the country has been able to get a new IMF program, which should help in anchoring expectations and filling the near-term financing gap. So what are the main risks that you'll be focused on in the next one year or so? What are the implications of the next April's presidential elections in Ecuador? Yeah, in the very near term, the main thing we're watching is how effectively can the outgoing Moreno government jumpstart the economic recovery with the help it's gotten from the debt deal and the IMF money? After a devastating year for the economy, you know, it's finally able to provide some oxygen with the $2 billion disbursement it got from the IMF, mainly by clearing some arrears it had racked up. The bar has been set very low for another $2 billion disbursement in December, which we expect will happen. Um, but an expected $2.4 billion loan from China is less certain. It was announced a long time ago and is, is taking a long time to materialize. It's facing some issues. Uh, next year, it really does seem to be all about elections that are scheduled for February with a potential April runoff. You know, they're very consequential for the outlook, but we do see challenges in any outcome. If a market-oriented candidate such as Guillermo Lasso wins, that's certainly good news for confidence um, in, in, among the private sector, but there could be some risk that such a candidate would lack a clear popular mandate or congressional support for the growth agenda they have in mind. And at least in the case of Guillermo Lasso, his agenda is not totally in line with, with the IMF program. He's long wanted to reduce taxes rather than raise them as the IMF is requesting, so a key point of potential contention there. And if a candidate from the left wins, such as Andres Arauz or Yacu Perez, uh, can't rule out some sort of negative confidence shock and could mean a very different policy direction. Uh, we're skeptical of the view that dollarization and a lack of, of money really constrain scope for populist policies. Um, they have made proposals for things such as tightening of capital controls, quarantining the dollars of the private sector, you know, potentially to fund expansive government policies. So there are some risks there. Now, moving on Argentina, how have the policies been evolving since the debt restructuring? Given the bleeding of international reserves and tightening of capital controls, is Argentina headed for a disorderly devaluation? And broadly speaking, what are the main macro risks that you'll be monitoring? So it's pretty clear by now that Argentina's restructuring did not lead to the virtuous cycle of better confidence, capital inflows, and growth that was hoped. Uh, I think coronavirus is obviously a reason for that, but also the government's response to it. It's opted to double down on policies that further fuel the macroeconomic imbalances rather than address them. Um, most of all, it's resorted heavily to central bank money printing to fund the much larger fiscal deficit. Um, and the upshot of that has been major pressure on FX markets. A wide gap has opened up between the official and parallel exchange rates, 
and central bank reserves have drained to pretty critical levels. So a key thing we're watching is, can the government finally settle on a policy direction that stops this bleeding? Uh, so far, we've seen a proclivity for heterodox measures, but then when those don't work out, there is a shift back to pragmatism. That's something we've seen recently um, after being tightened. Capital controls were subsequently relaxed for the agro sector. The government is now pledging to pay back some of the money that it's been lent by the central bank and to rely more on market funding. Um, but it's not clear if this ad hoc policy approach is going to be sustainable for long, and devaluation is certainly a risk. Um, IMF could be a real game changer. It would be great news if Argentina and IMF can agree to a program that not only reschedules the existing payments, but has reasonable policy targets and new money. Um, but that looks politically difficult. Both parties have incentives to cooperate, but Argentina has a really hard time mustering up political support for program conditionalities, and it's not clear if the IMF is in a position to be lenient and, and not ask for much from Argentina. So finally, Todd, as we look ahead, is there any scope for either of the ratings to move up? What can lead us to upgrade Ecuador and Argentina? On the other hand, is there a scenario in which Ecuador gets back into the triple C category? So right now, we don't see much upside for both ratings. Uh, we put out a report recently that shows that most post-restructuring sovereign ratings remain very low, and the sovereigns whose ratings did rise the most uh, tend to have strong institutions, and that's not the case here. For Ecuador, this is all reflected in its stable outlook. Uh, getting to a higher rating is going to take more than just an election outcome that we think is favorable for policy continuity but actual evidence of progress on fiscal consolidation, economic reforms, and debt reduction. And at best, that's likely to take a, a while to assess. Uh, it could fall into the C categories if the next government shows cold feet around the debt deal, or if there's any new shock that compromises the government's ability to roll over the local T-bills, but that's not our baseline. For Argentina to raise the rating into the B category, we simply want to see the variables moving in the right direction and see policies that help them continue to do so. I'm talking about a credible fiscal consolidation plan, um, options to finance deficits beyond money printing, and a recovery in international reserves for sure. And its rating could fall again if there's signs that Argentina may be unable to pay its near-term debt service, which is mostly local. Uh, that's not our baseline, but it's not inconceivable because we've seen that movie before in Argentina and in the past year, in fact. Thanks a lot, Todd, for your insights. Uh, thank you for listening in. And for more on Argentina and Ecuador, you can access our research on the website FitchRatings.com. Hope you will join us in the next Fixed Interest podcast. Thank you.